Good evening, folks. We give you a really warm welcome to our Sunday evening worship here at St. Peter's. As we, as we come to worship, let's hear what God's Word says in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for, the wa- for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. And we pray that that thirst will be met this evening as we hear his word preached to us. We're going to start by singing. We'll stand and sing what is my favourite carol. I'm allowed to say that. Um, O come, O come, Emmanuel. So if we stand, um, the, the band will start and then we'll stand and sing the whole hymn.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening and we bless you that you are our creator, our sustainer, the one who does all things good. And we thank you that you teach us. We thank you that you teach us from what we see round about us, but more especially we thank you that you teach us and feed us from Scripture. We thank you that as we study your word, we can see what you want us to do. We see what you've done for us. We see what you have promised to us, and we see all that you have given us in Jesus. We would pray that you would help us to have a more conscious realization of what that is that we would realize our deliverance from sin, that you would help us to more consciously bear the image of Jesus in our lives day by day, that we would know his upholding us as we walk through our life, and that we would be certain of being upheld by his Spirit. We pray that you would help us to have deep assurance of these things, that we know what we are and we know where we are going. Help us to have a growing sense of our salvation, that we may see more and more of Christ, that we may live our life to the full in him. Give us a closer knowledge of Jesus, that we might bring forth more fruit in our lives, and that we might be able to surrender all that we have to him and serve him more completely. And we pray that you would help us as we open your word this evening, that that would be taught to us by you. Be with us this evening and help us as we pray, praise, and hear your word preached. In Jesus' name, amen. On a Sunday evening, we're reading through uh, the Old Testament book of Numbers. We have reached chapter 24, uh, and we're going to read verses 10 to 25. So, Numbers 24, from 10 to 25, and you'll find that on page 163 of the Church Bibles. So, verse 10 of chapter 24. Then Balak's anger burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I summoned you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them these three times. Now leave at once and go home. I said I would reward you handsomely, but the Lord has kept you from being rewarded. Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell the messengers you sent me? Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold... I could not do anything of my own accord, good or bad, to go beyond the command of the Lord, and I must say only what the Lord says. Now I am going back to my people, but come, let me warn you of what this people will do to your people in days to come. Then he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, 
who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheth. Edom will be conquered, Seir his enemy will be conquered, but Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Then Balaam saw Amalek and uttered his oracle. Amalek was first among the nations, but he will come to ruin at last. Then he saw the Kenites and uttered his oracle. Your dwelling place is secure. Your nest is set in a rock. Yet you Kenites will be destroyed when Asher takes you captive. Then he uttered his oracle. Ah, who can live when God does this? Ships will come from the shores of Kittim. They will subdue Asher and Eber, but they too will come to ruin. Then Balaam got up and returned home, and Balak went his own way. This is the word of the Lord. So a couple of notices just to remind you of from this morning. Um, Sunday school party will be taking place on the 14th of December from 2 till half past 3 in the church halls. And also, if you're a parent of Sunday school um, aged children, there is no Sunday school on the 22nd and 29th of December. And also next Sunday evening, uh, the evening service will take the form of a nativity service. So that's the two main notices just to, to draw to your attention this evening. We're going to sing again. We're going to sing, Come, O Fount of Every Blessing. As we sing this, the offering will be uplifted uh, and we'll stand and sing the whole of this hymn.
before Harry comes um, to preach this evening, we're going to sing Psalm 100. Um, we'll be singing a cappella. Um, Stephen will lead us in that, and the tune is Diademata. So we're going to stand and sing Psalm 100. Shout to the Lord with joy, all who to earth belong. ago we began uh, what has turned out to be a, an intermittent series in the, the epistle of James, and we return to uh, James uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to read in uh, chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 1 through to 13. Uh, previously, we've examined verses 1 to 7, but for the sake of uh, some kind of continuity, uh, we'll read the whole passage this evening. Uh, James 2 from the first verse. My brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit in the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But 
if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well now, the phrase using a sledgehammer uh, to crack a nut implies using stronger measures than are necessary to solve a problem. Is that what James is doing here in chapter 2 as he addresses the theme of discrimination? Certainly not. He sees the nut of discrimination to be such a significant impediment both to our personal spiritual development and corporate church growth that in verses 8 to 13, he continues to hammer away showing just how much discrimination is a violation of God's law. And there are four things I want us to look at from the passage this evening. The first is doing what is right. The second is doing what is loving. Thirdly, doing what is uniform and consistent. And finally, behaving as those who are accountable. Well then, doing what is right, verse 8, or righteous. That is James' expectation of believers, for they belong to the kingdom of God. Verse 5 makes that clear. And the king has published his principles of conduct to govern the lives of his subjects. Uh, It's called here by James the royal law. Now, I know the word law causes a lot of Christians to get a little bit jittery, and they recite their Christian mantra, we are not under law, we are under grace. Uh, But come now, Scripture does not imply that Christians have carte blanche to behave as they like. Once we recognize that the law was never intended to be a means of securing God's pardon or earning his favor, then we need to ask, uh, what is the purpose of the law? Uh, A number of answers can be given to that question, but I want to suggest this evening that the answer becomes clearer as we ask, when was the law given? 
Did Moses address the Hebrew slaves in Egypt and say, listen, fellows, uh, keep the law of God and he will deliver you from bondage? No, that's not what happened. Uh, The law was given to a redeemed people, a rescued people, those whom God has adopted as his own. Out of Egypt I have called my son. And there is a significant difference and emphasis here. At Sinai, God did not say, keep the commandments and earn your redemption. He said, since I have graciously redeemed you, this is how I expect you to live as my redeemed children, as the subject of your king. These commandments of God are not arbitrary, uh, not Uh, like so many human codes of conduct created by the inventive minds of men, the commandments, in fact, reveal the mind of God. They, They divulge God's moral character. If you were to turn to Deuteronomy 4 and verses 11 and 12, and this is where Moses is reminding the people of what happened at Sinai. Listen to what he says. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire uh, to the very heavens. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no forum. There was only a voice. Now, what's happening there? God's revelation of himself found expression not in a visible manifestation, but in words, in the Ten Commandments. And it's only as we learn to delight in God's law that we can begin to delight in him and with the Spirit's help reflect his character. In the early years of my ministry, I visited a home where uh, a five-year-old girl was playing in her bedroom And things suddenly went very quiet. Now, that's an ominous sign if you've got a five-year-old. Then the door opened, uh, revealing a little girl in her mother's high heels, lipstick camouflaging her face. Look, mummy, she said with a smile, now I'm just like you. And a tear came to her mother's eyes. But Uh, But the point being, do we long to say to God, Father, I really want to be like you. I I want to reflect what you are like in my life. Well, how does that happen? Quite simply by having our lives conformed to the royal law. Only here in the New Testament is the term royal law used. 
I believe because James wants us to focus upon the source of the commandments. Why? For our attitude towards God's law will reflect our attitude towards God himself. There's a very obvious and clear application here. To ignore God's law is to ignore God. And that's not doing right. Doing what is right, doing what is loving. The royal law is described in verse 8 as the law of love. And you'll remember when Jesus was uh, tested by uh, the religious leaders and was asked, which is the greatest commandment? Um, What kind of answer did they expect? Did they hope that he might say, the age of the law is past? And I've come to abolish it and to usher in something completely new. Well, how did Jesus reply? He condensed the two tables uh, of the law, saying, Love God comprehensively, uh, that is, with your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor fittingly, that is, as you love yourself. Now, Unless you're a masochist, you will take good care of yourself. If you're unwell, you'll visit a doctor. If you're cold, you'll put the heating on. If you're hungry, you'll visit Pizza Hut. Uh, You get the picture. Now, we should exercise the same duty of care towards our neighbor, Think of Jesus' story in the Good uh, Samaritan. You'll remember he was approached by an expert in the law uh, who asked, what must I do uh, for eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? What's what's your interpretation of the law? And uh, the fellow, he must have been listening to what Jesus had said on another occasion. He said, well, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, go and do that. And we're told to justify himself. He says, well, who's my neighbor? Now, the point here is this. This man wanted a very limited definition of who one's neighbor was. God loved the world. The religious community in Jesus' day had shrunk that. Forget about the Gentiles. We're only thinking about the Jews, thank you very much. Smaller world. Uh, But they didn't stop there because uh, many of them had little place for women. There is a first century prayer as a rabbi praying this, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile nor a woman. So we've shrunk the world a little bit more. And then they had really no place for uh, publicans and sinners. Uh, So let's get rid of them uh, from our circle of care so they've reduced the world just a little bit more. But then there was theological division between them, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So that shrunk the world a little bit more. So what was the world that God loved has been reduced to a tiny little world that was their own intimate 
friends. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus told, you'll remember, the story of the the good Samaritan to shatter that world uh, view. Uh, And what a story it is. Love does not discriminate on the basis of ethnicity, social status, wealth, convenience. You notice our society increasingly lays stress on the emotional nature of love. We've reduced it to a mushy sentimentality which allows us to see need and to walk past on the other side of the road and say, oh, what a shame. Isn't it sad? See them suffering. Well... That is the kind of response that James is going to explode in great measure in verses 15 and 16, but that's, that's another sermon. The point being, uh, we need to ask, are we in danger of lo- losing sight of our duty of care towards one another? Uh, the very word duty has been devalued and emotion, what feels good, has replaced it. But genuine love is not so much an expression of feeling, it's an expression of the will. In the marriage ceremony, the minister does not look down on the couple he's marrying and say, tell me a wee bit here about how you feel about one another. That would be nice. He addresses the will, does he not, as he speaks of the binding nature of the relationship about to be formed. He says, will you, will you, will you? And you express your love for one another by saying, I will, I will, I will. You can't love your neighbor and at the same time steal his Mercedes. You can't love him and at the same time commit adultery with his wife. You can't love him while spreading malicious lies about him. You can't love him and at the same time say he's unworthy of your help. You see, it's abhorrent to James that some in the church could favor one particular group at the expense of another for to do so as far as he was concerned was to break the most royal of laws favoritism is not trivial it is intolerable to God doing what is right doing what is loving doing what is uniform and consistent How well James understood human nature. He immediately anticipates the kind of excuse his readers could use to justify their discrimination. They could argue, for for example, look, we are a law-abiding people. Uh, We do a great deal of good. Uh, We are certainly not thieves, murderers, or adulterers. Uh, We even help old ladies across the street. Surely our social apartheid can be overlooked in the light of the fact that elsewhere we're doing a really good job. 
I wonder if that kind of response sometimes finds an echo in our hearts. You know what happens when the Spirit of God sometimes puts his finger in an area of our lives that isn't right. Perhaps it's a, a reluctance to speak to those we consider to be yucky people. Great word that, isn't it? Yucky people or our impatience with someone who constantly rubs us up the wrong way. I wonder if we are tempted to think, but that behavior towards them is a small thing. I should be allowed to live with that little bit of discrimination, for it surely outweighed by all the good that I do. Well, James identifies a major flaw in that reasoning in verse 10. He's saying, you've failed to understand the true nature of the law. It is a unity. Break just one part and you've broken the whole. How many links in the chain need to break to render it unsafe. Just one. Now, the tire. How many punctures makes your car unsafe? Just one. The tire, like the law, is a unity. A a pinprick can cause disaster. When the English student picks up his exam paper, it often reads, only six out of ten questions need to be attempted. I loved those kind of exam questions because immediately you could read through the paper and choose the ones you were happiest with or knew a little bit about at least. But the law doesn't offer us multiple choice. It's not a pick-and-mix box of chocolates where you can pick out the soft-center virtues and leave the rest. We can't claim to keep the royal law, yet remain selective in the bits that we choose to observe. We daren't qualify our love for God by saying, now, just as long as you know, there are a few bits of the law that I'm not going to be paying much attention to. Do you understand the implication of that kind of thinking? You are saying to God, there are some parts of your character that I'm not happy with. For as we've said already, the whole law reflects the whole character of God. So to say, oh, I don't like that bit of the law, is to say to God, there is a part of your character that displeases me. Wow, what a thing to say. Why does James whose aim is to denounce favoritism, illustrate law-breaking by citing murder and adultery in verse 11. Surely his readers would heave a sigh of relief saying, I'm off the hook. I'm not guilty of those sins. I'm off the hook. Well, 
You may remember when Jesus spoke to those who prided themselves in their law-keeping in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, uh, 21 to 30, he used the same two commandments. And he drove them inward, equating anger with murder and lust with adultery. If this was in James's mind, then we can argue by extension. If in the fellowship there is anger, bitterness, resentment, impure thoughts, provocative behavior, unwise associations, all of which sour and destroy relationships, then surely we can add discrimination to that. For the law is a unity. And since the law is a unity, we can find ourselves standing in the same lineup with the murderer and the adulterer. What a thought. Now, James's determination to press home God's law must not cause us to misunderstand him. He's not saying that a man's uh, salvation rests upon his ability to keep the law. None of us would enter heaven uh, if that were the case. It is faith in Christ that saves a man. James is concerned throughout his epistle to challenge the genuineness of what we describe as saving faith. He is intent upon showing that a desire and willingness to keep the whole law without qualification and exception is one of the evidences of a genuine faith. What then is the standing of the person whose love for his neighbor is missing or qualified Uh, What uh, James says to those who are determined, despite the instruction of God's law, to indulge in favoritism and discrimination, well, he's saying that their behavior is not simply a minor irritant. It's really inconsistent with a genuine profession of faith. And alarm bells should begin to ring if that's us selective in our obedience. And so it causes James, you will notice, to turn attention to the matter of judgment. And so we come uh, to what is our fourth and final point, behaving as those who are accountable. Now, I've spoken to some Christians who believe that they've escaped uh, the judgment throne of God. And and they find this teaching really very disconcerting. Uh, For indeed, the New Testament speaks of two judgments. The first describes the separation that takes place between the believer and the unbeliever, the sheep and the goats, between those bound for heaven and those who are en route to hell. And the gospel promises the believer that he has been freed 
from the condemnation of God's holy law. There is therefore now no condemnation. Hallelujah, what a thought. But it does not suggest that his life will be free from examination. And Paul mentions this second examining judgment in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, where he says, uh, and he's writing to Christians, remember, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. On that day, the Christian's work will be shown for what it is because the day, that is the day of judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through flames as a brand snatched from the burning. There is a day of examination. That's the point that Paul is making. And it's that reality that causes James in verse 12 uh, to urge his readers to speak and act as those who are going to be judged. It's not your salvation that's the issue here. This is the examination of your life that is in view. And uh, James is uh, concerned that uh, we uh, take heed of that. God's grace rescues us from condemnation. It doesn't encourage careless living. A bishop speaking to church uh, candidates on the eve of their ordination said to them, Now, tomorrow I am going to ask you, will you, will you, will you? But remember there is a day coming when another will say to you, Have you? Have you? Have you? Clearly, we are to live our lives as those who are accountable to God. Indeed, for James, right speaking and right acting provide practical evidence that a person is truly a believer. This will be reflected in our attitudes and our actions towards others. Verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Can I take you back to the parable of the Good Samaritan? And at the end of the story, uh, Jesus asked uh, who it was that was the, the good neighbor. And of course, the expert in the law uh, couldn't bring himself to mention the word Samaritan, but he does say this, the one who showed mercy. Isn't that interesting? 
the one who showed mercy. And this is the subject that James has got us on to here, the showing of mercy. Fallen sinful nature is not merciful, but revels in revenge. Uh, during this week, I did what I don't do very often, uh, or ever at all, for that matter. I googled revenge movies, uh, and I found that there are 34 revenge movies currently streaming. And then I googled mercy movies, and uh, it threw up one film that's called Mercy. And when I read the little blurb underneath it, it was apparent that it had absolutely nothing to do with mercy because it was all about, uh, you know, getting stuck in and giving people a really uh, difficult uh, time. Uh, but you see, men do delight in revenge, demanding their pound of flesh. Uh, and they view mercy and forgiveness as alien characteristics, signs of weakness. But the Christian, who's seen himself as a spiritual pauper, recognized the enormity of his sin against God and truly grasped, truly grasped, that God has not demanded the rights of his justice concerning him, discovers not only that he has been set free from the law's condemnation, but he is free to act differently towards others than he had acted previously. You see, overwhelmed by the mercy of God, how can he fail to be merciful to others? He has both incentive and empowering to act differently. We sing of the cross, mercy there was great, and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Liberty from the condemnation of the law. Liberty to behave differently than I had done previously. Two liberties. If Jesus dwells in our hearts by faith, then so too does his mercy. We, we really can't separate the one from the other. The man who is merciless and pitiless has clearly never truly tasted the wonder of God's mercy. A point made uh, by Jesus in the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, you'll remember, having received mercy from the king whom, to whom he owed a vast sum, millions of pounds. Uh, he discovered a colleague who owed him something like a fiver, a paltry amount. He had received mercy. He refused to bestow mercy 
and he was recalled into the presence of the king because he proved that he hadn't truly, truly tasted, valued, and appreciated the king's mercy. And so what he thought had been the mercy that had been freely bestowed upon him was withdrawn. Well, says James, a failure to be merciful to others, to forgive others, is pulling the plug on God's mercy. Now, clearly, he's not implying that we earn God's mercy by being merciful to others. But by failing to bestow mercy, we're really making it clear that we've really never truly experienced the mercy of God. If we had, it would have blown us away. It would have blown our minds. Authentic mercy shines brightest when directed towards those who've wronged us, those over whom we have power to do both harm and to humiliate. To say, the debt's cancelled because a greater debt, my debt, has been cancelled by God. Well, James uh, concludes these verses with a glorious affirmation in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What does that mean? Well, uh, it can mean a variety of things. Uh, First, when mercy triumphs in our hearts... We are able to face the coming day of judgment with confidence, knowing that the the final sting of judgment has already been drawn by Christ. Mercy has triumphed. Secondly, the phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment, can also be applied to the man who has been shaken by James's teaching, he sees himself as a Shylock, mercilessly demanding his pound of flesh. And he realizes that any hope he had of receiving the mercy of God has toppled like a house of cards. His has been a false hope. Oh, he's professed faith in God, but... He has been so tight-fisted, unforgiving, and vengeful towards men that God's mercy towards him has a big question mark hanging over it. And so James says to such a man, it's not too late, listen. Mercy can still triumph over judgment in your life. Open your eyes to see what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Open your heart to experience the the generous, unfettered forgiveness of God. Taste his mercy. And in tasting it, your life will be changed. Your attitude towards others will be changed. Now, only the gospel equips us to truly love and be merciful to our neighbor. You may be sitting here this evening and thinking, goodness, uh, 
I can see lots of black marks <laughs> that I'm putting against my name here. This is, uh, this is asking too much of me. And you're right, it is asking too much of you. For only the gospel can equip us to love and to be merciful to our neighbor, to, to repudiate discrimination. Because the gospel deals with both our attitude towards the law and our ability to keep it. You see, the weakness of the law is that it tells us what God expects of us, but it fails to empower us for that kind of behavior. Let me try and illustrate this. I know all illustrations of weaknesses, and this probably has too. It's not enough to give someone like me a Beethoven score and say, there you are, Harry, go away and play that. Uh, I think that my musical ability or inability is probably known to most of you here. Uh, so that's no use. By itself, the score is of little help to me. I need the musical aptitude of these guys over here in the praise band. Uh, I need uh, their gift, as it were, to be breathed into me if I'm going to play Beethoven. Well, that's precisely what the gospel does with regard to God's law. It provides that powerful dynamic a God-given, spirit-manufactured enabling that equips me to keep the law, to love my neighbor, to do right. Indeed, like the psalmist, to delight in the law of God. As a youngster, I could never understand that. So he delights in God's How can you delight in God's law? Well, it's another way of saying you delight in God because the law reflects God's character. And only the gospel can equip us to live just like that. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we bow before you this evening and we thank you. Uh, that you have revealed yourself not in visible form but in your word in your law we see a reflection of your character and we thank you for your indwelling Holy Spirit who alone can equip us, enable us to recognize what the law truly is and to live our lives in a way that will prove pleasing to you. Help us to live our lives so differently from others in the world who do not know you that we do stand out as different, that we do demonstrate the mercy of which we have been speaking towards others, and while it may be criticized as weak and foolish, we pray that the 
recipients of our mercy may find themselves questioning what has made them behave in such a way towards me after all I've done to them. And so deliver us, Lord, from all forms of discrimination. Grant us to exercise a duty of care to all we come across, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to close this evening by singing together. Uh, we're going to sing Beneath the Cross of Jesus, and the praise band will lead us in that, and we're going to remain standing for the benediction at the end. So we're going to stand and sing Beneath the Cross of Jesus.
And now may Christ, who is adored in the highest heaven, the everlasting Lord, the Prince of Peace and Son of Righteousness, fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Amen.